0: Uh, just a quick disclaimer today, we're going to be going through 1 John chapter 1, verses 8, through chapter 2, verse 2, if you want to find your way there, and there's a lot packed into those verses, so there's really no way that I can touch on all of the, the great meat that's in there in one two-and-a-half-hour lesson that we have today. Um, so there will be a lot of wonderful things in there that I'm not going to be able to talk about that would be wonderful to study. I hope by God's grace that what we do cover is a blessing to you, it helps us grow in our faith. But if there are things that you're like, oh, man, I wish he would have covered this, but he didn't today, there's things you're curious about. Uh, number one, forgive me for, for missing your favorite thing. But number two, just talk to me afterwards. I'm an adult human that you're allowed to speak to, right? There are a number of adult humans that you are allowed to speak to. I don't know if you guys know about that. It's a pretty cool feature of being a human being. So think about that. Um, Before we get into today's text, though, I want to do a little bit of a recap of this letter. The context of the letter is super important. The context of 1 John is incredibly vital to the content that's in 1 John, because there are some verses in 1 John, if you just rip them out of their context and quote them in isolation, they can be somewhat scary, frankly, as a Christian, and there are also Christian leaders, not here, but Christian leaders in the world that will use those verses to to almost scare their people into obedience. And it will usually lead to prideful legalism or leave someone in crushing despair. So the whole purpose of the letter is really important so that that doesn't happen. So quickly, as you've heard before, the Apostle John is writing to uh, a church. We don't necessarily know which church it is, but it's to a group of believers that have been bombarded by a couple of big things going on. Uh, the, The church there is under siege from, first, some false teaching, false teaching going on, and then also all kinds of apostasy. Uh, There's a bunch of apostates. Big theological word there, but that means people who are up and leaving the faith. They're not leaving one gospel teaching church to go to another gospel teaching church down the street. They're ditching the essentials of Christianity altogether, just punting the Christian faith altogether and leaving the universal church, you could say. So that's been going on around this group of people, and that would be really, really hard for the people that are Still remaining there. So, when we look at the text today with that in mind, we have to also remember what has already been written. And if you've read the whole book, what's going to be repeated a number of times. But John is reminding this group of people still there of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for them. He's trying to comfort and assure them that the faith that they have placed in Jesus Christ is not misplaced in being there and that they are guaranteed a right relationship with God. On account of what Jesus Christ has done for them, not on account of how well they're presently obeying or if they've had a season of disobedience, but on account of Jesus Christ. And then uh, finally to remember as we get into the meat of the text today, I want you to have the right picture of John himself. Uh, It seems clear to me that John is not angry at these people. He's not in angry prophet mode when he writes this. He's not mad at the people that are still there about what's been going on around them, and now he's just trying to sniff out the last rats among them to say, which one of you are the fakers that I need to kick out of here? I don't think he's doing that. This isn't a fire and brimstone letter that he's writing. There's a time and place for those, but I don't think this is one of those. I think John is in a protective big brother type mode, a reassuring, comforting, pastoral kind of mode with them. And if we look just a verse back from what we'll look at today in verse four, Scott talked about this in the intro and last week. Part of the reason for this letter is that our joy might be complete, that our joy might be complete, not so that you can be terrified that you might not really be a believer because you're not obeying well enough. Oh no, I sinned yesterday. Is God mad at me? I mean, am I even a Christian? He's not trying to put that kind of burden on them. John is going to exhort his people to obedience, but this letter isn't a spanking for people not doing well enough. He's very tender. He's very pastoral in how he communicates to those who would be receiving this letter. And I think we'll see that today. So with that in the background, let's go ahead and get to the text. So if you would uh, stand for the reading of God's word, 1 John 1, 5 to 2, 2. I'm going to be reading from a version that likely none of you have. It's called the NET, but I'm going to be reading from it just because I really appreciate how it renders some of the Greek verbs, which you got some cool terminology in the first service. You're going to hear about Greek verbs now, but um, I think it is important for our understanding. So Uh, I'll read from, from, from there now. Now, this is the gospel message we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet keep on walking in the darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Let's pray as we consider these things today. Well, Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the opportunity to study it together. I pray that we would receive these words as the Apostle John intended, and that uh, we know what he has written is what the Holy Spirit inspired, so we know it has Uh, meaning for us today as well. I pray that we would guard it in our hearts and apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. A phrase that kind of kept creeping into my mind as I was looking at this uh, text, and really all of 1 John, was asking myself, how can I walk in the light while I still stumble in the dark? Right? How can I walk in the light while I still stumble in the dark? And if I try to answer that with, well, I'll just try harder, That's not really good news. That's not good news for me. That's not good news for anyone. Um, So that question and the not so great answer um, that was popping into my mind gives us what our, our main point is today, which is, wait for it. The light's not flashing on here, so I don't know if it's got batteries. I'll just tell you, and it's on your paper is that we can walk in the light because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we can walk in the light because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the section we'll look at today, John is going to set up a contrast of what it means to walk in the light versus walk in the darkness, and he's going to lay out a handful of consecutive if-then type statements that if you do this, then it means this. Or if this is the case, then this must also be the case. Or if this is the case, this can't be the case uh, over here. And what he's really fighting against is what that false teaching was in that area, pointing out that this can't be true uh, if we're saying these things. And he, of course, wants to exhort his people to walk in the light, but it isn't walk in the light so that the gospel can apply to you. It's that we can walk in the light because the gospel has already saved us. So that's what we're going to get into today. But again, quickly, before he gets into the actual if-then scenarios, John gives us first a foundational principle for that then light and darkness contrast to be laid out. So he starts out the section by telling us first something about God, and then from there goes into these if-then scenarios that flow out of that foundational truth. So back to the first verse we had today, John tells his readers that this is the message we have heard from him, of course, referring to Jesus. And remember that this is the same John that wrote the gospel according to John. He was the guy at the cross with Jesus to where Jesus said, hey, I want you to look after my mom when I die. So close relationship there, right? So he said, this is the message that we have heard from Jesus and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So God is light, is foundational, and that's to say that God is perfectly good. It's not that God does good things, like we can look at what God does and then assess it by some standard of goodness we have over here. It's that God is the standard of good. He is light. There's nothing in him and nothing that he does that could ever be described as dark. If you think about it, darkness actually isn't its own thing. Darkness is the absence of a thing. It's the absence of light. If a room is lit up like this, we wouldn't say, wow, this room is really lacking darkness, right? But if the room was dark, you could legitimately say, this room is lacking light. The the thing that makes something dark is the absence of a light source. So similarly, if we're taking light to mean good, dark to mean evil, evil is also the absence of good. So no, we say God lacks nothing. But we also say God has no evil. Well, that doesn't mean he lacks evil. It means that he is full of, he's uncompromisingly full of goodness and light. He also has no sin in him, but that doesn't mean he lacks sin. It's that he has perfect, unfiltered, unblemished righteousness. So God, or Jesus Christ in his incarnation, when he's walking in the light, it's because he is light. So Hopefully that's making some sense. God is perfectly holy. That's our starting point and we'll go from there. So, um, from there, talking about God being light, we'll get into the bulk of what we're going to talk about today, covering two questions, and we'll look at them side by side, and I'll see if this button works, but the questions will be, I'll point to, oh, it did go, okay. It will be, what does it mean to, to walk in darkness, and then what would it mean instead to be walking in the light? So, first, I want to talk about Uh, walking in darkness. What does it mean to walk in darkness? I'm not going to go into the deep details of what was going on in the first century church in this era. We heard a little bit of that from Scott in the introduction to 1 John. Um, But when it comes to what John has in mind when he's talking about walking in darkness, the first kind of thing we could say is that someone who is walking in darkness, for them there would be no acknowledgement or confessing of sin. But instead, there would be a denial of sin or a, uh, a downplaying of sin. So this would be people who have a posture of, yes, I'm saved by Jesus, but, um, and it may look like I'm sinning, but I'm actually not. You seem to think that I'm sinning, but I disagree. Or they might have a posture of, I just really don't have anything to confess. I have nothing to re- repent of. The things that I'm doing that you think are sin, it's not actually a big deal. It's not something I need to turn away from. And you probably, you probably have some friends who have deceived themselves in this way, or if we're being honest, we've probably deceived ourselves at times to think this way. There's something that the Bible clearly says is sin, but for us, we're not going to exactly call it that, right? Based on the way we are defining it or in our particular situation, it's not actually that sin that the Bible's referring to, right? I'm not actually sinning in this case. Or you, you may even say, I am doing thing X, And I know it seems like the Bible says thing X is a sin, but in my case, it's actually not. So if we're doing that, stop doing that. That's what theologians like to call kooky talk. So stop it. We don't get to determine those things. That's above our pay grade. But to walk in darkness means that we're denying that sin is actually happening while sin is happening. So that's one way that this looks. And we'll we'll talk about some scriptures that apply to that as we get to the opposite side on walking in the light. There's another way that, that, frankly, is probably more concerning if it's coming from a person who is professing publicly to be following Christ, and that is just to be not concerned about sin, like at all. It might be called uh, an indifference about sin, an indifference towards sin. So this would be a posture that says, yeah, I mean, I know that what I'm doing is sin. Don't really care. Not a big deal. What I'm doing is sin. So I do agree with God's word about that, but I'm not too concerned about it. I'm not gonna not do it. I mean, I like doing it and I'm fine with it, right? I like sin. God likes to forgive. It's a good relationship. We'll just keep that going. I know Jesus died for these sins. These sins caused my savior to be nailed to a cross, but it's cool if I keep doing it. It's no no big deal. I'm content to continue in my sin knowing that God considers it sin. So you could say a person like that has given in to sin. They aren't aren't fighting against sin anymore. They've given in to it, and it's just part of who they are, and they continue to just pursue sinfulness without even pumping the brakes a little bit. And this is coming from a person who's claiming the name of Jesus. So as somebody in, in leadership at the church, and based on what Scott's sermon was about this morning, that's terrifying for me. To, to think of sheep who would have that kind of posture, because that's really hard to work with. They know it's sin and they don't care. That's hard to correct. But as these two kinds of postures, a denial of the actual sinfulness of sin, and then maybe a, just a complete indifference or acquiescence to sin, both of those things would constitute what it means to be walking in darkness, because it's really a complete rejection of what God has revealed in his scripture, what God's revealed about. What is right and good about what we are to do and who God is? Uh, it's a complete disregarding for that. And this is part of the things that were being taught by the false teachers at the time. This church body were hearing these things as if this were okay. John's coming out and saying, no, no, those people were walking in darkness. Now, unfortunately, this walking in darkness, these kinds of postures are very, very natural to fall into. It's probably the default position for human beings. It's a position that we need to be snapped out of supernaturally. We need to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit so that we even want to do good and righteous things. By nature, mankind hates the light. We hate the truth, especially the truth about ourselves. We would prefer to live in the darkness where we can keep doing whatever we want to do in comfort or what we think is comfort. Uh, This actually goes back to something else that um, John wrote in his gospel in chapter 3, where he wrote, For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light so that their deeds will not be exposed. So that kind of life, that kind of posture, would constitute walking in darkness. And I want you to hear me say this. Um, uh, We're going to unpack this a little bit more when we talk about walking in the light. But a Christian, a true Christian and someone who is not really a Christian, will have a very different posture at the heart level towards God, his gospel, and his word. So again, think back to the context of John's letter we talked about a little bit, the situation of what's happening. There's this false teaching saying that these things are okay, and then there's apostasy, people leaving the faith altogether. So people all over the place are denying the reality of sin or the fact that sin is no good. Uh, The false teachers are in part saying that sin in the body is really okay, it's not a big deal, or these things aren't really sin, which is teaching from Satan. And then there are people who are now leaving the faith altogether, possibly because this false teaching is being questioned, right? There's real teachers now who are saying, no, no, we need to stop doing those things because we're Christians now. And they're thinking, well, all right, I'm out. I want to keep doing those things. And they keep walking in the darkness. That's what's happening here. And a point of clarification, I'm not saying that when you sometimes feel these things in like your worst moments, that therefore, well, you are walking in the darkness. I would probably say that you are stumbling into the darkness, but by God's grace, you don't live there. You don't stay there all the time. And by God's grace, he brings you back into the light. That's what the the verb tenses here in the original languages are actually really important, that it's saying that walking in the darkness is like, that's your regular position. That's the norm for you, right? Uh, We're all sinners that are not yet perfected, and we may slip into the darkness. We may tiptoe into the darkness, but those should be out of the norm by people who have been redeemed by Christ. Like, if if you were to get caught in, like, this huge lie, that would be a shock to people around you, because that's not normally what you're like. But let's say there's Dave. I don't know if anyone's named Dave in here. It's not that Dave, if so. But Dave gets caught in a huge lie, it's like, well, yeah, Dave's a liar. That's what Dave does. That's who he is. That's the difference between that being your your regular pattern versus a slip-up situation, which is still, of course, a sin, but doesn't constitute walking in the darkness. And again, read the way the letter's written. John isn't chastising the people that he's writing this letter to. Like, guys, what's your problem? Quit walking in the darkness, Right. He's writing to people who have been seeing this happen all around them who are surely unsettled by what's going on. So John's calling it out for what it is. That kind of teaching you were hearing, that kind of behavior, that's walking in the darkness. And that's inconsistent with what you have been taught by us about Jesus Christ and his gospel. But I want to comfort you, people who are still there, I want to comfort you and give you assurance of your salvation that you received, the the gospel that you received from us, which he gets on to, later on. So that's walking in the darkness. Hopefully it's clear what that means. But now let's talk about what it means to be walking in the light. So what does it mean to walk in the light? We have walking in the darkness over here. So you're clever. You probably know that basically the opposite is going to be what it means to walk in the light. But before we even get to those, one really important thing to point out is to say that walking in the light doesn't mean something. It does not mean that we have no sin. Okay, need to put that out there, make sure we have a good fence around that. To walk in the light does not mean that we are sinless. And honestly, there are some verses in 1 John that can be used and are used in some denominations to give you the impression that once you're saved, you don't sin anymore. You never sin again. You might have some mistakes, you might have shortcomings, but you don't sin anymore. If you are doing something that could be called sin, then you probably aren't even saved. There are some denominations that teach that way. Uh, Anybody with a bit of an AC background, that might sound a little bit familiar. Uh, There are some flavors of Wesleyanism, like uh, some Methodists might have positions uh, like that. But the text surrounding any scary verse that could sound that way makes it very, very clear that that's not the case. And the verses that John put in here were meant to contradict the kind of teaching that was happening uh, from the false teachers as well, who would be doing things that you call sin, but would say, well, it's not sin. It might be a mistake or something. But for example, verse eight would say that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And shortly after in verse 10, it says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and the word is not in us. So lest anybody in the room be thinking, well, if I'm gonna walk in the light, I guess I have to live in perfect righteousness. Well, that's impossible. So that's a lost cause that's not at all what's being saying. And in fact, if someone is claiming to not have sin, or if someone says you ought not have any sin, it means that God's word is not in you or is not in the person who is saying that. So very clearly, walking in the light does not mean that you have no sin whatsoever. If it doesn't mean that then, what does it mean? That everybody sins, so it's not a big deal though? Obviously not. So the first positive thing that we could say that walking in the light means is that someone who walks in the light will acknowledge and confess sin. We should acknowledge and confess our sins. And we'll continue to think about what our confession might entail as we make our way through. But right here, the verse that I skipped when I gave you 8 and 10, it's hard to pick a favorite verse in the Bible, but it's got to be in there, top five, I'd say, at least. But verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Just to take a pause there, just think about what that verse is saying. If you have sins and you confess them, God is faithful and righteous to forgive them. Maybe this is just me personally, but maybe you have it as well. Sometimes you're afraid to confess your sins to God, as if he doesn't know them anyway, but we're slow to confess them because we're afraid. That verse should remove any fear that we ever have of confessing our sins to God. It's a privilege and a joy to be able to confess them, knowing what the answer is going to be. You are forgiven. Um, That should be one of the most exciting verses that we have available to us. But anyway, um, walking in the light in a way that you would be pardoned for the sins that you have and in a way that you would have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another requires the confession of sin. That's not me telling you here's a work you need to do. This This just makes sense. How can you be cleansed from sin if you don't think you have anything to be cleansed from? This happens with my kids all the time when I tell them to take a bath. And they don't think that they're dirty. They're wrong about that. And luckily, I don't make them confess that they're wrong. I just put them in the tub. So my, my visual has gotten a little off here. But if you don't think you need any forgiveness, you're, of course, not going to confess. So the mark of a Christian is one who confesses our need for a Savior. Now, something, again, that I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting that you need to have perfect recall and be able to list off every single sin that you've had in order to be forgiven for that sin Um, Famously, Martin Luther, before uh, he initiated the Protestant Reformation, he was basically trying to do this. He was so burdened by his sin, he would be in the confessional with a priest for hours and hours and hours, confessing his sin to the priest. I can't imagine that poor priest during that. But he would leave still worried that he missed something. He would be terrified that he missed something and he wasn't going to be forgiven. That's not what we're going for here. This is a habitual pattern type of thing. Our trajectory, our default setting is that we are quick to confess our sins to the Lord and seek forgiveness for them. The habitual pattern of a believer that is walking in the light would be one who is generally quick to confess to the Lord when we have sinned against him, generally quick to do so. So going right with that, and again, to contrast with walking in darkness, for a person walking in the light, it is also necessary for that individual to identify sin, right? This would be incorporated, surely, in our confession. We don't want to always be generally confessing, oh, Lord, forgive me for any sins I may have done today, as if we're oblivious to the fact that that we sin every day, but we want to identify sins as such. Like we said, that's one of the things that the false teachers and the, and the eventual apostates were saying was, nah, it's not actually sin. If we're walking in the light, we identify sin as sin. And, and one way that we do that, or maybe the primary way we do that, is to use God's word like a mirror, right? We will use God's perfect law, his perfect expectations as a mirror and we'll stand before it and assess our reflection accurately. And we'll, we will see, when you just read a few pages here, uh, we'll see how fall short, how much we fall short of those standards. This is what God's word says to do, and I've not done it. Or this is what God's word says I shouldn't do, and I have done it. Right? We're not going to relativize God's word, make it okay that we did it in this circumstance, or, or like the Pharisees, make extra rules around the law that we actually can do, so it makes us feel like we've done the real thing. No, a, a, a person walking in the light will be quick to say, you know what? I have failed. I have sinned in these ways, and I need to repent. I need to confess these to the Lord. We'll identify sin for what it is and call it that. We don't want to explain it away. We don't want to minimize it, but we identify it. We acknowledge it, and we confess it. And as a reminder, you're going to live here your whole life. We all live in this Uh, setting our whole life, uh, this state of having to acknowledge and identify sin in our lives, we're going to keep doing that until the Lord returns or calls us home to be with him. So I'm up here as a struggling sinner speaking to a room of struggling sinners, and that's the way it's going to be for a long time. But just because we're all in the same boat doesn't mean it's not a big deal. Sin very much is a big deal. Sin is normal, unfortunately, but it's not okay, right? So we have, to, we have attention to maintain there, that when we see it, when we recognize it in ourselves, we confess it if we want to be walking in the light. To continue that train of thought, another thing that would constitute walking in the light is that we are concerned about sin. Right? We're not only aware of it, we, we not only uh, uh, are able to identify it, but we're concerned about it. Like We know it's a problem. right? We, we know we ought not do that. That was, a, that was the thing I shouldn't have done. And then to go from there, if we're walking in the light, we would be grieved when we sin. So there should be this, and again, I'm not saying that every time you sin that it really cuts you to the heart the way that it should. I recognize the reality of our uh, fleshly disposition. But in a general way, that when we sin, we are grieved by it. We don't like that we did that. We know that doing that grieved God, and that shouldn't sit well. We should be grieved by that. And this is the conviction that you feel about your sin. This is the the grief that should be driving us back to Jesus Christ over and over again. We have that feeling of guilt. We have to take it somewhere. The right place to take it is to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. So we should should feel that um, grief. We covered uh, a couple minutes ago in Walking in Darkness. If there is no grief over your sin, if it's not a big deal to you, if your posture is yeah, I'm sinning, I know that, but I don't really care that much. That would be a big concern for your pastors, your elders, and your your parents, probably, with regards to your soul, if you just don't care that you're sinning. Again, in our bad moments, we might not feel the right amount of grief that we should, but if it looks that way across the board, um, that would be a concern. It should grieve us deeply that we are grieving our Heavenly Father, who we profess to have sent His only Son to earth to live and to die for us. If we don't care that we're grieving him, that doesn't seem to line up, right? Another characteristic of one that is walking in the light would be that we don't want to sin. We are fighting against sin. We're struggling against those nagging sins. And this is a, this is a big one, um, because uh, if you feel like you're losing that fight, you can be discouraged. But we should be fighting against, uh, against sin. There should be a conscious, Holy Spirit-empowered fight against the wickedness in the life of those who are trying to walk in the light. We don't want to just, I don't know how you'd say it, take your own side, take our own side on our sin against God. Like, yeah, I'm a sinner. Sin's going to happen. It's kind of the way it goes. We want to take God's side on this debate about uh, our state and against our sin, right? There's a difference, again, in posture, in our orientation. Whose side are we on about this behavior? Am I on my side with regards to my sin of saying, oh, that's kind of the way it is. I'm, I, this is the best I can do. Or are we on God's side about our sin? I want to work as the Holy Spirit works in me to fight against my natural inclinations, which leads us to the next consideration would be that if we're walking in the light, we are truly trying to pursue holiness. We're pursuing holiness and godliness. If we're walking in the light, we pursue righteousness. We are seeking to obey God's commands. That is the goal. We don't want to keep sinning. Sin is going to nag us forever, but that's not our goal. We don't want that to be the case. We want to pursue godliness and holiness. We strive towards that. If we're walking in the light, we do strive to do good works. Now, flashing, I don't have an animation, but flashing banner and sirens above the head. We don't do any of those good works. We don't do any of that pursuit of holiness. We don't do any of that obeying. Number one, we don't do it on our own. We can't do that independent from God. There's no way that's going to happen. We do it as the Spirit's working in us. But big, big highlight here, we don't do any of that in order to be considered right with God. We don't do any of that to try to earn our salvation or to justify ourselves before the Lord of glory as we're good enough now for you. That's a huge, huge thing that we have to make sure to always keep straight biblically, that any kind of obedience and righteousness or good works are impossible apart from God um, in in you, in a person. And we do those things, we pursue those things because we have been saved, not in order to be saved. Uh, To use fancy theological terms for this, this is the critical importance of understanding the difference between Justification and sanctification. You don't need to read those. I just wanted to look smart with a long definition. Um, But being justified before God, that, that means that we are counted righteous, counted as righteous before the Lord, and we are justified solely by our faith in the work of Jesus Christ. This is a gift from God to us by His grace that through faith in Jesus Christ we are counted righteous. Jesus Christ did the thing, we get the benefits of the thing. And then after that, the Christian life is sanctification. That's what follows then in the life of a believer, meaning that we are progressively being conformed into the image of the Christ who saved us. That's where obedience lives. That's where our pursuit of holiness and our pursuit of godliness comes in. We seek to become more like our Savior because we love him. We love him for what he has already accomplished and achieved for us. Please keep that straight through the whole thing of 1 John that we go through, because there's going to be repeating themes. I I would never want to place a burden or a yoke on you that says, you need to be obeying at X, Y, Z level before we count you as righteous, right? That's not how it works. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been united to him by faith, that is what counts you as righteous, now, that said, when that happens in your life, there is a real change. A real change does happen in you that where you start to pursue these things, but that's going to be gradual. That's going to be imperfect. Right now, none of us are done being sanctified. Nobody who's still breathing has been fully sanctified, but there is still a way that God's spirit working in us, real obedience, real upward trajectory and righteousness is possible and does necessarily follow that miraculous work of the Spirit in us. And that's why, getting back to what our main point was, is that we actually can walk in the light, not because of anything in us, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We only have a slim chance of walking in the light because of what Christ has already done. We now have God's Spirit in us in such a way that real good works are possible, and they actually happen that's what our life starts to to look like. And this is a a Philippians 2, 12, and 13 type situation. If you're not familiar with those verses, you can write that down and look at them later. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. I'm going to read them in a second. But if you want to really grasp what this post-justification, now sanctification life looks like, how that works, um, I'd say these two verses summarize it more succinctly than anywhere else. I think they should just be one verse, I don't know if you know, the the verse numberings in your Bible weren't inspired by God. Those didn't come around until the 1500s. And if I was on the committee, I would have made these a single verse, but they didn't have the foresight of wondering what Chris Mettleman would think about that. But I'll tell you why. Uh, Philippians 2.12 goes this way. It says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that's terrifying (laughs) all by itself, which is often how that verse is quoted. But it continues to verse 13 to say, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So to read that whole thing together, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in other words, God and his Holy Spirit in you, is what makes your desire to follow him actually real. It gives you that desire. Your desire to obey becomes real. Your desire to do good works becomes real. It makes any of that obeying and good working a reality, God working in and through you. So at the, the desire level and then the action level, when it comes to obedience and good works, walking in the light, as we could say, this is God's spirit working in you that makes this possible progressively over time because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we never do any of this walking in the light stuff independent of God so that God gives us a high five later on. But yet we really are doing these good things. We really are and can walk in the light because of Jesus Christ. So this is this is what we mean when we talk about walking in the light. Pursuit of holiness, obeying, confessing sin, all these kinds of things which we can do because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can actually walk in the light as a fruit of that reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us and what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. All of that obedience stuff, any of that good work work stuff that we've talked about, that's all fruit. That's not root. The gospel is the root of all of that. Jesus Christ has already perfectly accomplished your salvation. This is what we do in light of that. Any obedience you have doesn't contribute even an ounce to what Christ has done. Even if it were 99.9% Jesus and then whatever I left off there, you, we would screw it up and we'd be in bad shape. It's all Jesus Christ. And on account of that, we then pursue righteousness and holiness. So if we're walking in the light, we're eager to acknowledge that. We're eager to acknowledge that, yeah, we are great sinners and therefore we need a great Savior and praise God that we have one. So some things to consider for you all as we finish up today. And um, my baseline assumption in putting out these things to consider is that you are a person who is already united to Christ by faith. And therefore, we're going to consider these things. If that's not where you are, that's a different conversation to have. And this is what you're missing out on, trying to pursue this life on your own. Um, But number one, again, to the believer who is secure in the finished work of Christ, consider this. And these are on the, the handout. What is one area where I may be slipping into darkness that I need to bring to the light through confession and repentance? This is simple. This is asking the Holy Spirit to convict you. If you're you're blind to it, maybe someone else convicts you of this or that you just really acknowledge, yeah, I know I have let that sin nag me for a while. I'm gonna actually repent of that. I'm gonna confess that and turn away from it. Again, not in order to be right with God, but because you have been made right with God. And then number two with that is, you know, do do you have a trusted parent, a friend, group leader, elder, pastor, whatever, someone that you could humbly confess these sin issues with, someone that you could uh, have walk al- alongside you as you seek to pursue holiness. We need one another in this fight against sin. Don't go at this alone. Part of what this um, this passage says is that. In walking in the light, we can have fellowship with one another. This is part of being with one another, is relying on someone to help us in this fight against sin. And then number three, this is a really long one, um, but it's an important one. And it's, uh, the the answer should be obvious, but something to, to think about for yourself. Are you looking at obedience? Am I looking at obedience as a way of earning God's favor and therefore a burden that is impeding my joy? Or... Are you, am I looking at obedience as a pathway to joy and as something that is the fruit of the miraculous reality of the salvation that has already been earned by Jesus Christ on my behalf? Again, a long one, and you know what the right theological answer should be, but really consider how are you going about your day? Because way number one is not good news. That's not good news for anybody. Way number two is the best news that the world has ever received. So think about these things. Um, that will finish us up for today these themes that we see here these are going to be repeated john kind of writes in a cycle so we'll touch on more of this stuff in future weeks whether it's me scott aj or, or somebody else but uh, be be thinking about these things in the coming week and in the coming weeks ahead of that and uh, just one other thing i know scott mentioned last time he, he recommended that you read this passage right Uh, I have an audio version of the Bible. The whole thing of 1 John read in a fancy way slowly takes 16 minutes. I would like to challenge you to read the whole letter before next week. See if you can find 14 to 16 minutes, I bet you can, to read the whole letter of 1 John. If you want to earn yourself a little Bible, you could read it every day, the whole thing every day, until next week. And if you all come to me and said I did it, I'll order some more of the little Bibles and you can all have one. Or since you've already got a little Bible, I'll think of something else that you can have. But uh, read it and read it in its context. Don't read just the scary verses because there are scary verses in here, but this is a letter of reassurance so that our joy may be complete and so that you can be assured that you are saved in Christ. So with that, let's close in prayer for the day. Well, Lord, um, you are good. You are light, and, and that light is humbling to us. It is Scary sometimes to stand before your presence, and it should be scary, Lord, if we are doing so in our own strength, looking to uh, impress you with our good deeds. Because, Lord, your word shows us what the standard is, and pretty good or trying hard is not the standard, but perfect righteousness is, and that's why we need a perfectly righteous Savior. So thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to do all of these things that we have failed to do, and for counting us righteous on His behalf. And Father, I pray that that reality and and your spirit working in us would spur us on towards good deeds and obedience because you are the one who saved us. And we want to we want to become more like Jesus Christ. We want to, uh, in gratitude and in thankfulness, obey what you have before us because it is for our good and for your glory. So I pray that that would be our posture in this coming week and in the, the weeks, months, and years ahead, that we would always be looking to Christ and on account of him, seeking to do what you have for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.